Well, hello everyone and welcome. I'm Catherine Murphy and today we're in Gilmore and we're looking at how voters make their decision on polling day. Now, taking you through all of this is Paul Karp, who has published a terrific essay on that part of the world. Now, it was really important that Paul got outside during this campaign, not only to get some vitamin D, but because he's got a really great point of view. Yeah, so uh, Gilmore is a long, skinny electorate on the New South Wales south coast. Uh, it goes from Kiama and Nowra in the north down to uh, Churros Head in the south, takes in a bunch of places, Batemans Bay, Ulladulla. And demographically, uh, there's, a, there's a mix of retirees, young families. There's a large Indigenous population, but it's slightly less multicultural, as in fewer people from other countries and, and, and migrants than the rest of Australia. The stakes are really high in Gilmore because this seat was won by 1,500 votes last time. Gilmore is the Coalition's most marginal seat in New South Wales, so it's regarded as a must-win for Labor to form government. Um, And Labor's candidate from last election, Fiona Phillips, is running again. Uh, But because the Liberal MP, Anne Sudmalis, has stepped down, that's allowed the Nationals, Katrina Hodgkinson, to run. And you've also got a a contentious way that the Liberal candidate was chosen because Grant Schultz had the votes to be the Liberal candidate, but then Warren Mundine was the pick from Scott Morrison and head office. So you have some disaffection in the Liberal Party with some people going for Grant Schultz, the Independent, and some with Katrina Hodgkinson, the National. So it's a four-cornered contest. Very interesting. Not that common. Talking to Paul is our producer, Miles Martignoni. I loved hearing all the different people you talked to. Yeah, it was great finding locals and, you know, finding what their, their issues are because you, you can never pick how people are, are going to vote and that, that's what you learn. People have complex and strange opinions. Yeah, and what sort of issues are important? Like The main one we've been hearing about is TV reception. Oh. So I think fixing the highway is a a big thing that they need to do and just creating more jobs in these small towns. That's what they they really need. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, my top three would be climate change, education and healthcare. We've got two really shit governments. You've got to vote for one of us. And it's no good voting for anyone else because they're not going to be dominant. They're not going to be a controlling force. One policy I kept hearing about again and again was Labor's changes to franking credits. So self-funded retirees will not get a tax rebate for the company tax that it's already been paid on the dividends that they receive from companies. And this is what the coalition has branded the retirement tax. And I found that lots of voters were using that term as well. Uh, Would you like to be in? The proposed Labor Party retirement tax on... Franking credits is going to disadvantage us. Yeah, uh, I'm not happy with the um, the Labor government. I can tell you, you know, because I'm a self-funded retiree, and if he's going to take our, our imputation from us, the tax has already been paid on that money from the companies, so he's actually getting double tax and making it harder on us because we're we're not reliant on on, you know, the government for, for any subsidy except all I get is a $2.50 train ride or a bus ride. That's it. Mm. Nothing else. And does that impact you and your friends yeah, personally? Yeah, it certainly will impact me. Absolutely. And my family. There were also Labor voters who um, 
recognised that they were going to be worse off without this money, but they, they didn't think it was a fair thing to begin with. It was a concession they took the benefit of, but they didn't think anyone should get access to, and they were happy to lose it. What sort of issues are important to you when you're so, deciding how to vote? Issues for me, most important, number one, big shining stars, environmental issues. Plenty of voters on the south coast were interested in climate change. And I think a lot of people focusing on education, health. But for me, economic management, it's a given. You don't need to highlight that. But really, the environment, it's the legacy we're leaving for our little ones. And if we don't have it there doesn't matter how good your economic management is, there's not going to be anything to manage. Mm-hmm. I live south of Maria. This is where I thought things started to get really interesting. Yes. And what issues are you, uh, do you care about or do you think need to be what addressed? What do I think? Um, climate change, education, health um, and affordable housing for young people, I think, is is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And do you have an idea about which parties or candidates uh, might be best for those, for those issues? No, I don't. No, sorry about that. Oh, okay. No, all no, right. not at all. How, how, do you get your, um, how do you get your information about politics? Uh, 6 p.m. news, newspapers? Yeah, usually the ABC News, That's we watch that all the time. So, yes, that's where we usually get. And our local news. Our local, um, As she said all these things to you, Paul, did you think, oh, this is definitely a Labour or Greens voter? I was surprised because that is that is a clutch of issues that you might associate with the progressive side of politics uh, and that Labor has some, some big spending policies on, so you might expect that she would be voting Labor or Greens. But I, I realised that voters have a, a kind of internal list of things that they care about, but they don't necessarily join those up to candidates and parties unless unless they hear from them. And so it, it, you can't guess whether someone is, is a voter for one side or the other. Two areas. And how are you going to decide between now and May 18 then? <laughs> Good questions. Haven't yet decided. Mm-hmm. Still thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So actually I was only talking to my husband about that the other morning. I haven't. I actually haven't made a decision about who I'm going to vote for. So, yeah, undecided at the moment. And you you can't pigeonhole voters. They can have counterintuitive opinions. I mean, I spoke to a a man called Adam in Batemans Bay. Uh, He was sitting in a wheelchair outside the Aldi at the shopping centre. Making the the, um, end ideas work better is something that I would like to see. Like to see. Um, Are you on the NDIS? Yes, yes, I have. I have cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Um, How have you found it? Have you have you found it, uh, getting a care package easy, or did you have to wait? Long? He was obviously a fan of the NDIS, and he had some some praise for how easy it was to get staff and support from disability care workers. But he also had some administrative problems. It took him 12 months to get shoes on the NDIS, which seems a very long time for something that seems, you know, quite quite basic in need. Um, and, you know, you, you, you wouldn't want to not have any, any shoes because you would go, go barefoot for, for that amount of time. Well, if, if you're playing a little guessing game uh, as you're interviewing people, you, you might think that, uh, you know, Labor set the NDIS up and Labor and the Greens want to tip more money into it. So you might think if that's his number one issue that he's voting on the progressive side of politics, but then he brought up electric vehicles. The idea of um, electric cars will, 
will work in the in the future, but won't work now because not there's not a lot of infrastructure there, mm-hmm. and not every house is going to to have most most people won't have phase three connected, and because it takes 28 hours, so people in the country are gonna gonna only get half halfway mm-hmm. and need need to recharge. We need to recharge their cars like I do with my wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you balance those issues? Like, do you know um, which candidates you think have better better positions y- on those issues? Yes. Um, put put it this way. Um, put it this way. Probably Scott Morrison has better ideas on those issues. Where um, Bill Shorten is 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 more more to going down the line of the of the greens mm-hmm. so that's what i that's what i think it's so fascinating trying to figure out how people make up their minds on these issues yeah it's it's interesting there's such a, a mix of issues that people decide on um, and it how how they weigh it up is a bit of a mystery until you until you talk to them yeah i, I mean I, I really tried to figure out i, I talked to a researcher but she said it's so valuable that there's actually no one theory that can tell you how this process happens. Yeah, that's difficult because there's so so many possible permutations of how people are receiving messages now. This is Professor Sally Young from Melbourne University. Now, she stressed that it's so complicated, it works differently on different people. Because of some of those factors like partisan attachments, socialisation, class, even factors like gender and identity and so on but also because people interpret messages. They um, might reject or they might critique them. They might talk about them amongst their friends. So all sorts of things come into the mix of how you understand and interpret media content. But she definitely did identify a few different ways people pick up political information. One of the media effects that is, is most consistent is that what the media says are the most important issues in an election tend to be the ones that people identify as most important when they're asked later. So, for example, if the parties keep saying the economy is the most important issue and the media, you know, gets that message across as well in various forms, then people will tend to say, I think the economy is the most important issue or one of the most important. So these sorts of specific effects, effects like agenda-setting effects, are important. That's about it. How do you decide you vote if you're not, you know, super into it, if you don't follow all the time? It's probably just the ones that I hear on TV. I'd probably any of the ones that are well-known, I guess. I don't really know anything else. Most people have some general preconceptions about one side of politics being good at economic management and the other side maybe being better at social spending on things like health and education. Well, at this stage, for the Liberal side, I think they're sort of better for people in business, um, but they're from what I've been gathering, they're not quite so good for looking after the social side of things, which is, in my opinion, Labor's strong point. They're more on the social side of things, looking after health, education. But that's not to say they're significantly different, but we've got to pay for everybody's big ideas. So for me, that's a bit of an issue too. That's something that the leaders of both parties are keen to push as their strong suits. And so if you're getting your information from the six o'clock news, that would be self-reinforcing. We haven't got an alternative. Right. Okay. Both leaders, I think, have made terrible errors. 
you know, I used to be a very strong Labor person. But uh, not since the 80s? Until, until I, yeah, until the 80s, until I had to, had to buy a house at 25% interest rate. As I was talking to people in Maruya, I met a gent who was there with his uh, adult grandsons who were tradies, and he brought up an issue that I hadn't heard anyone else mention because it's not uh, technically part of the policy of any major party. And now I've got a house that I own and I want to leave to these guys and Labor wants to bring in a death duty of 30%. So as far as I'm concerned, Labor can go and get rooted. Where did you hear that about the death duty? They, they spoke about it. Right. Okay. They've, they've sort of put it on the back burner now, but they said they have interest in bringing in death duty. The idea that Labor would introduce a 30% death tax has been doing the rounds uh, on the internet based on a wish list that the union submitted last year. And it's not Labor policy, but it is something that has been getting a run on the social media accounts of coalition politicians. And so you wonder whether someone like this picked up the message from somewhere else like social media. Yeah, and we know that social media is being used to target specific advertising to specific groups of people. And I thought this was a new thing, but it's actually a really old technique. Yeah, so this is a new element and an old element in a way because targeted messaging has been done for quite a while. So one of the ways the parties did it in pre-digital times was through direct mail, so sending out letters, um, you know, very targeted letters directly to people in their letterboxes addressed to them. And because they had extensive databases on people, um, not on everybody necessarily, but they do have good files in marginal seats and they do have information that comes through, basic information about people that they add to. So they try and identify voters' interests um, right down to the individual voter in marginal seats where it matters. And what they did and what they still do is send out targeted direct mail letters which might say, okay, we, we know you're interested in the environment so we're going to tell you our environment policy. Yeah, it's it's certainly not unique to social media. I mean, uh, my background is industrial relations and I, I've reported on union campaigning a lot. And unions and, and Labor, they, they go about it the same way, which is to door knock people who they think are undecided voters, find out what their most important issue to them is, and then try and profile them in the way that they target them through phone banking. So if you tell someone three months before an election that your number one issue is health, then they would arrange for a nurse who's a member of the nurses' union to call you up a fortnight before the election. So that that's how they try and get it, undecided voters with the issues that are most persuasive to them. But yes, social media allows you to do that without having the huge sophisticated data collection operation because, in effect, the platforms are the, the, the thing collecting that information that helps you target people. And, you know... Um, Nick Evershed and I reported on ads that were being targeted at people who liked particular brands of car on social media, and then the Liberal Party was targeting their attack ads about Labor's electrical vehicle target with tailored ads to people who liked Toyota Hiluxes or people who liked Holden's or other popular brands and models of car. What do you think about negative campaigning and negative ads, because I, I hate listening to them, but they can be kind of memorable at times. Everyone says that they hate negative ads, but parties keep doing them, so they must be effective. It's often said in 
political advertising that negative works. People say they don't like it. We really don't like all this negativity and slamming, you know, other leaders and opposite parties, but they say they they actually remember it. They remember negative ad content much better than positive ad content, for example. Talking to people in Gilmore, it, it certainly seemed that way. They all seemed pretty, pretty nice, except for the fact that Warren's been parachuted in. People were parroting lines about Mundine being parachuted in. I'm not too wrapped in the idea of having someone parachuted into the, the electorate. In a way that could have been, you know, directly from, from an attack ad. In this area, I think the fact that, you know, we had candidates foisted upon us, that's not a good look. Uh, and, and so clearly those, those campaigns have an impact. I wouldn't vote for Mundine as long as my arsehole points to the ground. Oh, OK. Why don't you like Mundine? Well, he's come in on the coat strings of the Liberal government. That is one major, major fault that the Liberal leader has made. Lots of people were voting against Labor because of um, the franking credits changes, not for the coalition, against Labor. Lots of people were voting against Mundine, not not because they loved the alternatives, but because they wanted to send a message to the Liberal Party about the way that the candidate was chosen. So they, they were either persuaded by or energised by by negative messages as well. Um, that's that's when you heard language like retiree tax, mundane parachuted in. They're they're all they're all attack lines that you would expect to hear from campaign ads. Being on the ground in a marginal electorate is like being in a washing machine. You're getting you're getting pulled in all sorts of different directions uh, and getting contrary indications. Finding batches of voters going one way or the other for a complex different mix of reasons. If you watch election coverage and listen to election coverage, it, it seems like the big national frame is the thing that determines people's votes. You know, things that are said at the campaign launches that make the 6pm news. But when you talk to people on the ground, so few of them are naming specific policies they're more either giving a general one side is better at this, the other side is better at this, or based on what they know personally about the candidates in that local area or a particular grievance that they have, that really the the national result is the sum of millions of, of separate opinions about local contests and not about big overarching frames. And then on election night, you get results that are very flattened out. And all those, all those complex reasons why someone was going for, for Mundine or, or for Fiona Phillips or the other candidates, all those reasons are flattened out to a number. Uh, and then the votes are, dis- are distributed as, as uh, candidates are eliminated and the complex reasons are further eliminated until one candidate wins. So being on the ground, you get complexity and then at the end you get simplicity that only one candidate can win.
Well, thank you so much for listening. If your interest has been sparked by this whole conversation with Paul and Miles and myself, take the time to read his feature about the electorate of Gilmore, which you can find on theguardian.com. Now, we're into the final week of the election. We've got some great stuff coming in an audio sense. Remember to share the podcast if you like it, tell your friends, all of that sort of stuff. We'll be back before you know it.